Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. So good morning. My name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here as well. It's good to see you this morning. We're continuing in a series that we've been doing this spring, although it doesn't feel very spring-like today, does it? Chilly. Uh, on Hebrews chapter 11, we're going uh, bit by bit through this passage, looking at all of these people that are set before us as examples of faith. And this morning we come to talking about Abraham for a number of weeks now, and uh, we come to the generations following Abraham to talk about Isaac and his blessing of his children, and then Jacob and his blessing of his grandchildren. And so let's read together from Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to read verses 8 through 10. And then verses 20 and 21, and that will be the substance of our our time together this morning. Let's read together. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, here's my question for us this morning as we contemplate. We're going to really look at verses 20 and 21 and the blessing of the future generation by each of the patriarchs there. As we do that, let's, let's consider this. Is there anything that you're asking God for? Is there anything that you're believing God for, God for that is so big that it cannot possibly be accomplished in your lifetime? Are you, by faith, posturing yourself toward the Lord in any way for anything so big that it is not possible that it will be accomplished in your lifetime? I really have in mind verse 13 here as we think about these two men. Uh, we didn't read this, but in verse 13, the Hebrews writer says this. He says, these all, all these people that are being set before us as examples, these all died in faith, he says, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. They died in faith. So let me just posit something to you this morning. If you are going to live a life of faith, if you're going to live by faith, you're probably going to have to also die in faith. And here's what I think that means, that you will probably die without all of your prayers being answered. That you will, your life will come to a close while you're still waiting for some kind of resurrection. Because God doesn't tie up every storyline within a single lifetime. In many cases, it is a multi-generational narrative arc. And your kids and your grandkids even, and even great-grandkids are the ones that are going to see the fruit of your faith. That's part of what we're being told here. It's interesting that this is a part of the whole thing here in Hebrews 11, but, it, but it's here nonetheless. And if it's the case, then part of living by faith is to be intentionally preparing future generations to carry on the legacy of your faith when you're gone. You have to be a part of that work if you're going to live a life of faith. Now, there's only one verse in Hebrews 11 dedicated to Isaac, Abraham's son. That's verse 20. And there's only one verse dedicated to Jacob, to Isaac's son to Abraham's grandson, and that's verse 21. But in each of those verses, the act of faith being noted by the Hebrews writer here is in reference to the next generation. So the the faith that they were known for was a faith that was directed towards their children and grandchildren. So look there, it says, by faith, Isaac blessed his sons, Jacob and Esau. And then again, by faith, Jacob blessed Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And so in both cases, 
their faith was directed at the next generation. So I think we, this morning, we need to talk about how to similarly be invested in the spiritual lives of the next generation, of the young people, of the children and teenagers and the younger generations running around here. Now, this is important for us as a church, I think, because we've said, if you've been here from the beginning, you know, we have a 50-year vision for ministry in Winter Haven. We, at the outset, when we started out to plant this church, we knew that what we wanted to see happen in the city as a result of our being here was something that would have to be experienced by our children and our grandchildren and even our great-grandchildren. And so we cannot accomplish the vision of our church if we aren't intentionally developing faith in future generations. And look around. I mean, listen, God has blessed us with so many children. Mary Catherine, he's fine. Don't worry about it. It's going to be okay. We want, that is a lovely sound in a church. To, to hear that, to hear the voices of children ringing out in the church. What a treasure. What a responsibility. And we want to be doing everything we can to be passing on the faith to the next generation. We do that on Sunday mornings. So here's, Tammy's not here today, but here was the assignment I was given by Tammy. She wanted me to remind you that we want, we want to make this uh, available for people to come back and bring their kids. We want to be in two services with kids worship and all that kind of stuff. We need help because one of the reasons why we're having a hard time doing kids worship on Sundays is because we can't get volunteers. We need volunteers. We need to be a church that sees it as number one priority to be passing on the faith to the next generation so that so that they will grow up in the faith and take the mantle and carry on in the mission after some of us are no longer here. So help us. Make that a part of your life. We need all of, everybody to come, come, come alongside of that dream and that vision. Now, as we're doing that, as we're thinking about future generations, there really are three lessons that really are the seed of what needs to be passed on, I think, from this text. Three, three lessons that need to be the focus of what we're trying to give to the next generation, and they are just this, that first, we need to teach, teach future generations that what, we're look, what you're looking for cannot be found in this world. Secondly, <clears throat> we need to make sure to remind them that they already have divine authorization to carry on the mission. And then thirdly, we need to be intentionally reminding them that the spiritual power for the mission comes from being loved and not from being strong or being good. We need to remind them of grace. And so let's look at each of those things as we go through this text and the text these point us back to in Genesis this morning and just talk about each of them. So first, the first lesson I think as we think about living in faith toward the future generations, we need to remind them of the lesson that what you're looking for cannot ultimately be found in this world, so don't put your hope in earthly things. It says here in verse 9 that they lived in tents together. You see that by faith? Abraham went to live in the land of promise. He lived there as, a, as in a foreign land, in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. So he and his family lived as sojourners, as strangers and exiles on the earth, not at home here. And then it goes on to describe in verse 10, looking forward, though, to a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. So there's a contrast between the way we experience life here and what is yet to come. In 2 Corinthians, Paul uses the same imagery. The same contrast. He talks about our life here being one of living in tents. We're actually we're camping out, you could say, to describe the impermanence, the transitory nature of life. And then he contrasts that with our experience, our experience here with what we will experience in heaven, where we will have a building from God, a house not made by, by hands, 
or God will build something that will be the lasting, permanent thing that we're made for. Now, full disclosure, in thinking about this, um, the Bennett family is not a camping family, I need to tell you that. I am what, I am what Jim Gaffigan would call indoorsy, okay? Uh, and I, if, you haven't seen, if you haven't seen his bit on camping, you really ought to go, it's, it's, it's marvelous. But what you should know is that we did do it once, camping that is. When our boys, who are now 20 and 18, it's hard to imagine, when they were very little. In fact, on that trip, Isaac, our 18-year-old, was scheduled to, to turn one on the trip. So 17 years ago, when we had a three-year-old and a, and a one-year-old, we decided we were going to be a camping family. And so we had, <clears throat> excuse me, we had a cabin in North Carolina for the week with my sister and brother-in-law. But, you know, we decided we wanted, we were the kids were really little, obviously, so we didn't have to worry about school back then. So we decided we were going to go up for a few days early to camp before we got into the cabin for the week. And so we got a campsite at Julian Price Park on the Blue Ridge Parkway right outside of Blowing Rock, North Carolina, if you are familiar with that spot. And the first night was great. The boys slept all night, and, um, and we got up, and we made food, and we went hiking, and we had a great day. First night, great time. Second night, not so great. It started to rain, and this was obviously pre, um, pre-phones and obviously rookie camper mistake that apparently we didn't check the, the forecast, I guess, or whatever. And when I say it started to rain, okay, you got to imagine like the, the worst heavy downpour of a Florida, you know, afternoon thunderstorm, except not for 20 minutes, like all night long, it rained to where, I mean, I think there was mudslides and water was coming up from underneath the tent and coming through every, every stitching in the tent and everything got soaked and nobody slept and we were freezing to death. And as soon as it was light enough to see, we threw the kids in the car and packed up the campsite and went to the cabin rental company and begged them to let us get into our log cabin days early and they did and it was marvelous because we wanted to be dry and warm and sleep in beds and cook real food and that was the last minute camping (laughs) trip as a family (laughs) because there's a difference isn't there between trying to do it in a tent and trying to do it in a really nice log cabin in the middle of the mountains in North Carolina and it says here that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were living in tents That was their life. They lived in tents, but they were looking forward to a city that has foundations. And the implication being that here, here in this life, there are no foundations. There's nothing solid or or lasting enough to ground your hope and security in. Later, it's restated later in Hebrews, he says, here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Now, what does all that mean? It means don't try to make a home out of this world because what you're looking for, you're not going to find it here. Don't build your life on things in this world. Material possessions, connections, work success, none of those things can provide a foundation for you to build on. You've got to live like an exile in the world. Pitch your tent and remember you're just passing through, but this, this is not home, right? This is not home. And that's something, that's, that's a truth that we need to pass on to every generation. 
I don't know if you're aware, Tim Keller, who has obviously been very influential for us and a good friend of ours, he has pancreatic cancer. Uh, and so it's some tough days for the, the Keller family. And, uh, and so he's facing the reality of his own death. Uh, and I can't, I can't wait to read what comes out of him as he does that. But one, he wrote an article for The Atlantic about his cancer diagnosis and, and some of the things it's taught him that is well worth your time if you can find it online. I can probably reference it later so we can read it. But here's one of the things he said. Of all the things he said, one of the most profound things, I think, is to the point I'm making here. He, he talked about he and his wife, Kathy. He said, you know, the more we realize, we started to look at our life and we realized the more we tried to make a heaven out of this world, and we were guilty of doing that, he said, but the more we did, the more we tried to ground our comfort and security in it, in things here, the less we were actually able to enjoy it. He said, to our surprise and to our encouragement, what cancer has taught them anyway, Kathy and I, he said, we've discovered that the less we attempt to make this world into a heaven, the more we're actually able to enjoy it. No longer are we burdening it with demands impossible for it to fulfill. And when you stop doing that, he said, what we found is that because we're no longer doing that, now the simplest things, things like a sunset or flowers in a vase or just a good conversation with friends, these things bring more joy than ever. And so the very first thing, the first lesson, is this, aim for heaven. Because if you do, C.S. Lewis said, you'll get earth thrown in with it. But if you aim at earth, you'll get neither. Don't build your life on worldly things. That's building on sand, according to Jesus in Matthew chapter 7. And the rains and the floods, when they come, and they are sure to come, when they come, what you've built will crumble. But in the world to come, right here we are sojourners. We live this life as in a foreign land, but in the world to come, there's a city with foundations. Build your life upon that reality. And in the meantime, travel lightly. That's the first thing. But the second lesson that, that, uh, that we need to really be honed in on for ourselves and then also so that we can so that we can pass it on to future generations. The second lesson, not just that what you're looking for cannot ultimately be found in this world, but secondly, every generation, every generation already has divine authorization to carry on the mission. But it still has to be given. It still has to be given. Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, we see here in verse 20. Jacob blessed Ephraim and Manasseh, verse 21. And so we have to intentionally give the blessing to the next generation as an act of faith. Now let me explain that. <clears throat> this idea of blessing. So let's talk about the word blessing for a minute. And this idea of blessing figures large throughout Genesis. If you were, just think of the flow of the book. God first blessed Abraham, I'm excuse me, Adam and Eve, and he commissioned them as his image bearers to fill the earth and multiply, subdue the earth, and so forth. He then blessed Noah as the floodwaters receded with that same commission, and then, of course, Abraham in chapter 12, in the famous verse where God said to Abraham, I will bless you and I will make you a blessing. And the blessing in each of those cases was God's authorization. It was his stamp of approval. It was him saying to the people, you know, Abraham, you're my man. You're the man for the job. Abraham, I, I believe in you. It was a commissioning. It was a job appointment. And so... We need to reprogram ourselves. When you come across the idea of blessing in the Bible, blessing isn't the promise of financial security and gain. Blessing is an assignment. 
for a life of mission. God blesses to make you a blessing. And so we're instructed in the Bible to pray that God would bless us, but so that he would bless us so that we might become a blessing. And God's blessing there, that, that idea is, that, is the promise of his presence and his power to fill your life with everything that you need for the sake of other people, for the sake of the success in the mission, for you to become a blessing to the whole world. And so every gift God gives comes to us on its way to somebody else. The blessing doesn't come to you, biblically. Biblically, the blessing comes through you. And so in Galatians 3, Paul says that now, a consequence of the gospel is that the blessing of Abraham belongs to all who believe in Jesus Christ. Did you hear that? So this promise of blessing is yours if your faith is in Jesus. And then he says it's the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit is the third person of the the Trinity, the supernatural presence and power of God that not only has come into the world, but but that if you're a believer in Jesus, has come into your life. And now he's actually a person who's taken up residence in your life. And so if your faith is in Jesus Christ, you have the Spirit living in you. You have the blessing. The promise that God will work for you in order to work through you. But here's the thing. So few of us experience this firsthand in a way that is formative. And that's because even though we all, in Jesus Christ, already have the blessing of Abraham, it still has to be given from one generation to the next. It has to be given, typically by fathers, to their children. And this is what these two verses in Hebrews 11 are referring to. And it really... It's remarkable that this is a part of this whole story of faith that we're being told here. We're, 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 being, we're, we're being shown two ceremonies, being reminded of two ceremonies where the blessing was formally given to children and grandchildren by the Father in Genesis chapter 27 and then again in Genesis chapter 48. And in both cases, there was a certain formality where the children were called together in a certain ceremonial way, where words were spoken by the Father that were meant to give shape and direction to the lives of the one being blessed with prophetic words. Listen, discerning the uniqueness of the younger person and who God was making them into and the specific call on their life that somehow, listen, that somehow mysteriously became concrete in the affirmation and the words spoken by the Father. It's really powerful. And so for every Christian, God, God's blessing is already yours, but you really experience it concretely through being blessed by others, especially with powerfully affirming words. So this is something that all of us really can do for one another. We can, you know, we can bless one another and we can curse one another. You realize that, right? We can bless and we can curse, and both lodge themselves in the soul. And so we all need others to have a spiritual discernment about our lives, to know who we really are, to have a vision for the kind of life that we are meant to live, that we might actually live, and then to use powerful gestures and ceremonies and words to affirm and to encourage us towards becoming who and what God is making us to be to embrace our unique mission in the world. And that's what's being described here. Now, if you've ever had an experience like that, you know how powerful it can be. If you haven't, I hate that. I want that for you. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to, to have experiences on a couple of occasions in my life, and one of the ones that sticks out I remember the most 
when I was a very young man in my early 20s, probably even before kids or sometime around when my kids started, we started having kids in my mid-20s, uh, I, the church I grew up in uh, allowed me to preach, which was a dangerous thing back then because uh, I wasn't a very good preacher, but they were very good to me. And in preaching, at the end of one of, probably, if not my first sermon, one of the first sermons I ever preached, there was a man who was a patriarch in the church and everybody respected him. And when he spoke, it was kind of a thus saith the Lord kind of thing. Whenever he spoke, it was that, there was just that kind of reverence for him. And I remember in the Baptist church, after you preach, you would come down and you would do the invitation. And as that was going through, this man kind of got up out of his seat and, and interrupted the entire church service and stopped the music and called me forward in front of the whole church and laid his hands on me and spoke a blessing. And I don't remember what he said. <laughs> that's not really even that's not really even the point. I mean, it was something like, son, I believe in you and you're gonna do great and God's gonna do amazing things and I can't wait to see it. You know? But it was a powerful moment to know that that man believed in me. It helped, it helped me believe in what God was doing in my life. It set the trajectory of my, of my life. And it's why for years, um, when my kids were younger, not less often now, I really, I wanted to do this last night and I forgot so that it could be current too. But um, for a long time, for, and, and a lot of the time, on Saturday nights uh, in our family, we would have a special meal. And what we would do is after dinner, I would take anointing oil and I would go around the table one by one to my kids and I would anoint them with oil and put my hands on them, typically like put my hands on their face and make them look me in the eye because it's uncomfortable, you know, and I, but, I, but look me in the eye and I want you to hear me say, and, and then I would just speak a blessing over our children and over Ashley to say, look, look, I'm so glad you're mine. And I love you. And I believe that you're gonna do great things in life. God has something really, really significant and special for you. And I want you to know I believe, I believe you, I believe in you. Because there's something powerful about being affirmed like that by a father or by a friend or by a community of people. When you, when you know people believe in you, you start to believe in you too. The act of blessing can make you. There's power in it that helps you become the person God intends you to be. And every generation already has divine authorization to carry on the mission, but it still has to be given. It has to be made concrete through ceremonies and gestures and powerful words that affirm. And I'll, I'll be honest, I want Redeemer to be a church where young people experience being blessed by those ahead of them. So, if you're in your 20s, listen, I want you to know, I believe in you. Don't wait until you're 35 or 40 or 45 to become a leader. We need you right now. We're, we're old. We don't understand the world anymore. But you do, and we need you to take the mantle of leadership and lead us into this whatever post-COVID world is going to look like. We need you right now. If you're a teenager or a young person in this church, listen, you've got gifts the world needs, not when you become an adult, right now. And I believe in you. You've been made for great things, every one of you. You're a king or a queen of Narnia. That's who you really are. And so don't settle for being TikTok famous. God means for you to change the world. So change it. And know that we believe in you. Because that's the kind of affirmation we all need. But there's a third thing. And the third lesson, something that significantly is happening here in both of these instances, you gotta understand how the blessing comes. You gotta understand who it comes to. 
And in both instances, what we see here in verse 20 and 21 is that it's the younger son that's put ahead of the older. Now, Isaac does it unintentionally. If you remember that story, we'll get to the details in a minute. For Jacob, it's very intentional when it comes to blessing the sons of of Joseph. And the lesson is this, that being good or being strong isn't what gets you a place in God's family. It's grace. The family legacy is grace. You don't belong to the family because you're one of the good ones. You belong because you're one of the loved ones. Now, in the story of Jacob and Esau in Genesis 27, this is verse 20. We see the wrong way to go about trying to get the blessing because that might resonate. You might say, oh, I, yes, I know. I, and we all are living towards somebody looking at us and saying, well done, I love you, I think you're great. And in that story, we see the wrong way to go about trying to get the blessing because if you remember, Esau was Isaac's favorite. He got all of Isaac's time and attention and love and Jacob was neglected. He was his mother's favorite, so the parents had picked favorites and it was just a really gross, ugly situation. And so when it came time for the blessing ceremony, The blessing was meant for Esau. I mean, Isaac told Esau, go do this and this. But if you remember, Rebekah overheard and went to Jacob. And Jacob dressed up like his older brother and came into his father. And he tricked his father and stole his brother's blessing. He pretended to be somebody else in order to get the blessing. He became the person that he thought he had to be in order to earn his father's love. And that's the temptation. To dress up in a false self to try to secure and get the blessing from other people. To hide. Hide your flaws and your fears and your insecurities because you believe they somehow disqualify you. But Because if we think, we, you know, we think if people knew the truth, then they wouldn't love and accept me. And so we hide. We develop a persona. Or, here's what a lot of people, we get religion and we do good and we dress up as a moral person to try to earn the blessing by by this record of moral righteousness, but that's not the way it works. I mean, in that story, Jacob got the blessing, but it didn't mean anything. It didn't powerfully change him, and it was because it was all a lie. So Richard Lovelace, in a, in a keen insight, he said that the problem with religion is that all of the goodness that you're doing and dressing up in, it's not enough to even satisfy your own conscience. That no matter how much you do, no matter how much you sacrifice, no matter how much you give, no matter how committed you are to the church or to whatever, that deep down you can never shake the sense that you're a fraud. And so it doesn't work that way. You don't get the blessing by dressing up and being the person that you think you're supposed to be. Well, then what's the solution? Well, it's what we learn it's what we learn as in, the cumula- in the accumulation of these texts, that all of this with Jacob, it happened by accident, but not really by accident. God was behind it all to teach a powerful lesson, and it was one that he ultimately learned, but much later in life. Because when it came time for Jacob, the one who had to dress up to get his father's blessing, when it came time for him to bless Joseph's two sons, and if you remember, Joseph was the 11th of 12 boys born to Jacob. He was sold by his brothers into slavery in Egypt, but God had sent him there ahead of time to prepare for the family. He was the apple of Jacob's eye. He was the preferred son of all of his sons. And so when there's this reuniting of father and son at the end of, of their life, it comes time for Joseph to, bless, to, for, to have his sons blessed by his father. We see that finally the lesson had sunk into Jacob because it says in Genesis 48 that Joseph, he, he maybe heard the stories of the family, I don't know, he, he, knew, he knew the way that this had gone in previous generations, and so he decided he was going to like fix it up. And so when he got ready to bring Manasseh and Ephraim to Jacob to be blessed, it says that he intentionally put Manasseh, his firstborn, on his left toward Jacob's right hand. 
Because Jacob was going to put his hands on each of the children, and Joseph wanted to make sure that his right hand was, was on Manasseh because the right hand was the symbol of power and authority and blessing. It was, it was reserved for the firstborn. And so Joseph wanted and expected Manasseh to get the firstborn blessing with Jacob's right hand. But as Jacob goes to bless the two boys, Jacob, ever the trickster, he pulls one on him at the very last minute. As the boys come up to him and he, and he goes to put his hands on them, it says there in Genesis 48 that he does this. At the very last minute, he crosses his hands and put his right hand on Ephraim, the secondborn, and his left hand on Manasseh. And then comes the editorial comment, putting Ephraim before Manasseh. And here's what I want you to see is the Hebrews writer chose that moment in Jacob's life as the supreme example of his faith. Isn't that interesting? Of all the things that he could have chosen, it was that. Because he finally understood He finally understood the lesson. In Romans 9, Paul puts it like this. The older will serve the younger. That's just the way it works with the Lord. The older will serve the younger. It's the reverse of what normally happens, but it's the way of God's working. The older will serve the younger. Why? It goes on. Because it's a a, um, physical reminder of the spiritual truth. The older will serve the younger because it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. See, in the world, the younger always serves the older because salvation was by human strength and initiative. All of that was represented in the firstborn son, but with God, it's the reverse. The older serves the younger every time. Every time. Think about it. It's Isaac, not Ishmael, right? It's Jacob, not Esau. It's Ephraim, not Manasseh. This is the way, it's every generation, it's the same thing. Because in the world, the first are first and the last are last. But with God, the first are last and the last are first because salvation is by grace. It's not the strong that get the blessing. It's the weak who know they're weak. It's the sinners who know they're sinners. And so the blessing isn't earned. It's a gift. It comes to and through the weak and the unworthy. So faith, see Jacob's faith, faith acknowledges this upside down way of grace. It says, by faith, Jacob blessed, look at there, verse 21, the sons of Joseph bowing in worship over the head of his staff. In other words, here's what that means. God's grace, God's grace had become a matter of worship for him. He loved it. He loved that this is the way God did things. But here's my question. Do you? Or are you still fighting? Are you still fighting to get the the firstborn blessing in your own strength? And listen, this is the thing that our kids and our grandkids need to know the most. They need to know that our family blessing comes through grace, not their performance. It's ours through Jesus Christ. Because Jesus, he was the firstborn of all creation the only begotten son of the father. He lived through all eternity in a state of firstborn blessing and the father doting on him and pouring his love and affection into his son's heart. I was reminded, our second son is graduating this year. It's hard to believe. And so we're going, we're doing the whole going through old pictures stuff and I hate it. I I just be honest, I hate, I can barely do it. Um, Ashley, Ashley's been doing it and and I'm sure she's been like, why won't I, I I just can't do it. I I literally can't do it because it just, it hurts so much to look back at all those great memories. I want to do it all again. I don't want it to be over. I want to do it all again. And here's the thing. That is just a dim hint of what the father felt for the son from all eternity. But the gospel says that that affection and love was disrupted because he left. Jesus left that firstborn blessing to come to earth to die upon a cross. And on the cross, he lost the firstborn blessing. Paul in Galatians 3 says that he was made a curse. Instead, that he took upon himself the curse of our sins, that he 
dressed up like us and got the curse that we deserve so that when we believe in him, we can be clothed in him and get the blessing. That's our gospel. Isn't that great? All for his sake. Jesus was treated as if he had done everything that I have done so that when I believe, I can be treated by God as if I have done everything that he has done. And every generation needs to be reminded of how the blessing comes because it's so easy to forget. We're forgetting all the time. And here's the truth. Here's the truth that can land on us this morning. There are no second-born children in God's family. Hebrews 12, 23 says this, that we are the assembly of the firstborn. That means every single one of us is the favorite. Every single one of us is the firstborn. We are the assembly of the firstborn. Our names on the roll of heaven, it says there, enrolled in heaven. We are on the, we are on the rolls of heaven if, you, if your faith is in Jesus. And here's the thing, that is the blessing that when it becomes yours, it goes through you to others. That is the truth that can not only be a blessing to you, but that can make you a blessing. And isn't it great news? And so the appropriate response for us would be to say with the hymn writer this, this is, this is, the, this is the response of faith to this this morning, to sing with the hymn writer, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. And then you know the chorus, on Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is what? Sinking sand. Let's pray. Would you pray with me? So, Father, make that our confession this morning. Would you pray? By your Spirit, come and work in us. We thank you. Uh, that we are heirs of this promise, that, that it says very clearly in Galatians 3 that if we put our faith in the Lord Jesus, that the promise of Abraham is ours. So help us to live in the truth of that, to know that because of Jesus that you look upon us and smile, that we can have your affirming words spoken over our lives, that, that we can take our place with past generations in carrying out this great mission that you've given to us to be a blessing to the entire world. That is our legacy. And so help us to live into it, but then help us by faith, like these two men here as examples to us, to turn towards the next generation and intentionally say, I'm going to live for your sake and not my own. Not like Hezekiah, who got bad news, but said, well, at least it'll be, go okay for me. And he said, as long as it's okay with me, who cares what happens to my kids and my grandkids, but instead to say, no, I'm going to live for your sake and not for my own sake. I'm going to live for the sake of what God's going to do in you after I'm gone. That's just, that's a gospel way to live. And so help us, help us, give us a, a vision for that. Give us courage and energy for that. Bring these truths home to our hearts in ways that can't help but turn us around so that we would become a blessing to others. Bless us, Father, and make us a blessing, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The great news is that each week, that as we do this benediction, I get to basically speak a blessing over you. Right? Because, again, our, our, our hearts need to hear these affirming words. And so if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, then because the, the hand of God's wrath came down upon Jesus on the cross... His hand is now raised over you to bless you. And that's why I can raise my hands over you and speak these words. And so receive them as just that. Receive them as your Father's affirming voice as he sends you now to go into the world to carry on the mission that he's given to his people. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.